Welcome to Highland, especially those online. It's good to be together this morning. My name is Jared Stichter. I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here at Highland. And I just want to take a moment to pray as we uh, finish up our current series this morning. Just ask God to continue to be with us and lead us as uh, we get into his word. Father God, I think about the blessing it is to gather in your name, united under the gospel. God, thank you for allowing us to gather here, uh, whether in person or online or at our different campuses, and, and really, Lord, any Bible teaching church, Lord, thank you for the blessing, the privilege of being able to gather together. Lord, we ask that in this time with opening up your word, you're inspired, you're an errant word, the word that brings truth and life, Lord, that we would grow deep in our understanding of what you have for us, what you've called us to as your children. Lord, let us not take this time for granted as we think about our brothers and sisters across the globe, that some of them even this week, it's been reported that as they were gathering they no longer looked at each other face to face, but they saw you face to face as they were martyred. Lord, let us not take for granted the freedom we have to do this and the ability to be here together. Let us not waste this service, this time of fellowship and prayer and worship. God, we're thankful for what you continue to reveal to us in your word. Lord, help us to become more like Jesus, we pray. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For a season in my life, I loved the TV show Undercover Boss. It's not for everyone, I know, but for a season, I enjoyed it, especially when the highlight of the 2016 World Series champion, Chicago Cubs. That was a good one. Um, like every good American TV show, it's based off the British version with the same name. Thank you for laughing. I appreciate a few of those chuckles. It aired in February 2010 on CBS, and each episode features a high-profile, high-positioned executive or an owner who uh, goes undercover as an entry-level employee at their own company. This, the executives, they change their appearance, they assume an alias, and of course, they have a creative backstory. At the end of the undercover week, which they magically make one whole week happen in one hour of television, the boss returns to his or her true identity in usually a very dramatic fashion and calls in the selected employees that we've gotten to know over the previous hour to corporate headquarters. The boss rewards the hardworking employees through promotions or material or financial rewards. Other employees are given training and better working environments, and of course, the good, thing, the good stuff. Once in a while, you get to see someone get the boot for their bad behavior. Maybe it's my love for people watching or the fact that somehow, even though there's a small chance that it might be a little scripted, I feel like I'm in on the secret. I feel like I really know who the new guy or gal truly is and I get to watch how the employees act around that individual and how they treat that individual. It truly is great. 
And although admittedly it might be a little produced, slightly scripted, it's very enjoyable to the audience. I think it gives us a little glimpse of today's text. We have come to the conclusion of the Olivet Discourse in today's sermon. The entire text has given us a glimpse of what is to come one day. However, more importantly, it's taught us as Christians how to wait for Christ's return well. We have seen that there'll be signs of the end of the age and it won't come necessarily as a surprise that during the tribulation, the man of lawlessness or the Antichrist will set up an image of himself to be worshiped in a temple that has not been built yet. He's breaking his promise to the Jews to allow them to worship and sacrifice to the one true God, Yahweh. The Bible calls it the abomination of desolation. Jesus has revealed that nobody, including himself while on earth, knows the day or the hour of his return. And then a couple weeks ago, we looked at the parable of the ten virgins, five being wise and five being foolish, which corresponds with whether or not they were prepared and ready for the bridegroom. And then last week, we saw Jesus teach the parable of the talents. With a faithful servant hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. How you and I long to hear those words one day from our master. It's here where we arrive today's text. Jesus has been the undercover boss, if you will. He, he's been slowly revealing more and more of who he truly is and how to plan for his ultimate revealing. And today we reach a point where he plainly proclaims who he is the returning king and judge. We're in Matthew 25, and we're gonna chop it up a little bit as we go through it, but we're gonna start in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. It's amazing to consider what Jesus is showing us here when we look at it. Two times Jesus mentions that word glory. In scripture, when we see repetition, it's there to get our attention. He wants to draw attention to the fact that this is a big deal. When Jesus comes, it's not gonna be subtle. It's going to be glorious. People will take note. Jesus mentions the glory that's to come. The son of man comes in his glory, sits on his glorious throne. Glory perhaps is something you and I in our American culture don't use in the same manner as we see here in today's text. You and I might understand glory to be a high renown or honor won by some notable achievement. However, Jesus here is referring to his magnificence or his great beauty. His grandeur, his size, his brilliance, his splendor, his overwhelming demeanor and stature. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, will return with all the angels and he will be coming for a purpose. A purpose that's much different than the last time he came. You see, last time Jesus came in humility. 
The second person of the Trinity who always has existed, who always will exist. He takes on flesh, veiling divine attributes, living a sinless life. And for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to become sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus bore the cross for our sin, for our shame. He was murdered. He laid down his life. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. And on the third day, he rose victoriously, which gives us evidence of life beyond the grave. We sang about that just a few minutes ago. And after revealing himself and commanding his followers with a few last instructions, he ascended into heaven where he's currently seated at the right hand of the Father, signifying completion. He's not tired. He's just done for now. However, he will not stay seated. He will not sit down forever. As he tells his followers in our text today, he will be returning and it will be glorious. The undercover boss will be fully revealed. He's coming as the king and the judge. And it's gathered before the throne that the nations are around him. Now, we see that word nations and we, we miss what the Greek word ethne actually is referring to. When we see nations, we might think of like sovereign entities. We might think of countries. That's not what the word ethne means. The word ethne literally means peoples, individuals. And so the, the right way of thinking, it's the proper way of thinking about the gathering and the separating is a literal person to God encounter and conversation where each person, whoever was, who is currently, who will ever be, so will stand before the great shepherd and he will separate as he sees fit. In Revelation, John provides a picture of the great white throne judgment that this is speaking of. It's a parallel text in Matthew 25. The words will be on the screen. Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. Then I, John saw a great white throne and him, Jesus, who seated on it. From Jesus' presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened. And that book is referred to as the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now you and I need to remember John had been exiled to the island of Patmos at this time. It's, an, it's a Greek island in the Aegean Sea. It's actually closer to Turkey than mainland Greece. Antiquity would say that John was uh, arrested. He was boiled in a vat of oil by uh, Domitian, and yet he didn't die. He continued to preach the gospel, and because he wouldn't shut up, they exiled him to Patmos. It's there that Jesus reveals himself. We see the book of Revelation come from that. 
it gives us a similar picture with different details of the same event that we find in Matthew 25. A giant throne with the entire world surrounding it being judged by Jesus himself. Get the picture. Sky fled from him, nowhere for it to go. Jesus sitting on his throne looking down at everything we look up at and see no end of. He sees the ends. He's above his creation and he is judging all who are in it. But notice, there's only two options. The lake of fire for non-believers and for those whose names appear in the book of life, they enter into the new heaven, the new earth. They spend eternity with him, eternal life. And while John does not include the dialogue between the sheep and Jesus, Matthew includes conversational details in the midst of the judgment. John records an amazing sight. He sees Jesus as he is today, seated in his glory. And above all earth and sky, so much so that no place was found for them. He sees people great and small stand before the Lord and give an account for themselves and their lives. And while John does not mention sheep and goats, we see all people individually standing before the Lord. And the faithful are spared and the unfaithful are thrown into the lake of fire. And now you might have an idea of what Jesus says to the sheep and the goats. But before we look exactly what he's saying, I think it's one more cultural detail to really get a glimpse of what's really happening here. See, understanding that Jesus isn't just randomly naming two animals. Jesus is not simply uh, giving an illustration. There's significance to his illustration. Jesus says the separation will be like that when the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. You see, these two animals were the most common of all the smaller domestic animals at the time. And the, of the two, the sheep were prized more highly. You see, these two animals would graze together. And they weren't the sheep we go to the fair and see where they're sharing the wool. And it's very obvious to see the difference between a big you know, woolly sheep and, and, and a goat. From afar, they looked kind of like the same animal. You wouldn't be able to tell what was a sheep and what was a goat. But... When it came to be dark, the shepherd's job, part of keeping the sheep and the goats healthy and alive, is understanding their needs. Goats, they don't like the cold as much. You gotta wrangle up, you gotta separate the goats and provide a warmer space at night for them so they can survive the night. Sheep are a little bit like myself. Go to bed on a full belly, you gotta take care of things, right? And so you feed them and they separate them. And so he met their needs he separated them, and it was a, this was a common pastoral illustration. The hearers would be well aware that the separation into two sharply different groups was necessary. And he gives no explanation to why he chooses these two animals, but it does emerge that those called sheep were the ones who receive a favorable judgment, while those called goats don't. And it accords in this that the sheep are on his right and the goats are on the left because the right hand was considered to be the highest regard. When you're with a ruler and he lets you sit at the right hand, he's given you the highest place of honor. And the left side was considered like an ill omen and it's kind of like a curse. And so it's only, it's only the right thing that the less favored goats go to the left, culturally speaking. So with that in mind, you and I might have a preconceived notion of what Jesus is about to say based on what we've learned before, but we might be surprised. 34 and on. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, 
inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. For anyone attending Highland longer than one Sunday, it might grab our attention of Jesus' response. The list, hungry, gave food, thirsty, gave drink, stranger that's been welcomed in, naked now has been clothed, sick and marginalized are taken care of. Jesus' response is a little bit shocking if we look at it at face value. Jesus is saying, look at all those things that you did for me. Because you did them well, come on in. And for any of us who are following Jesus, we have to ask the question, is Jesus actually insinuating here that somehow my good behavior earns God's favor? Like if I do something good for someone else, God must like me. That's great. I must be okay with God. But, but we have to interpret scripture with scripture. We have, to look at the, we have to look at scripture as a whole and see that perhaps Jesus is not saying that. We know that Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us it's for by grace you have been saved through faith. And he answers the question, this is not your own doing. In fact, it's the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. Plus studied throughout scripture is the reality that you and I can do nothing to earn salvation or God's favor. It's God's good and free gift alone. Jesus is not telling us that you and I earn our salvation or his favor by our actions. But rather we could think about Matthew 7, we think about the tree that's known by its fruit. Simply stated, the good works that Jesus lists do not earn our salvation. It's not the cause of our salvation, but rather it shows evidence of our salvation. That when you and I do things for other people that help them and serve them, we're not trying to earn God's favor, we're just showing others we know him. Think of it this way. All the good, think of all the things that describe a good son or daughter to their mother. Getting her a Mother's Day gift, writing her a birthday card, calling her just to tell her you love her, taking care of her if she's sick, giving her a hug every single time you see her, which junior high boys, that's still cool by the way. You do that, all right, amen? Give her a hug every time we see her. Making sure you obey her if you're in her home and making sure you respect and honor her when you're an adult. Now the question is, are we a son or a daughter because we do those things to and for our mother? No. Simply doing those things do not make us a child 
What it does though, is it shows the evidence that we are part of the family. They don't cause me to be a son or a daughter. It's just how I ought to behave as a son. So we notice here that the sheep and their response, there's confusion. And it's not because they're sheep. They're not confused because of their status before the Lord. They were confused that because of all the time they're on earth, never once did they ever recall physically meeting the needs of Jesus. Their response is one of, when did I see you? It's 2021, Jesus isn't walking around. Out of all the ethne that's gonna stand before the throne, all the Christians who ever have been, all the Christians who are now, who will be, all the people of faith in the Old Testament whose faith was credited as righteousness, Jesus lived for 33 years. Very few actually served Jesus, the man physically. The confusion is, how is that possible? It's 2021. But just like Jesus so often does, he takes something that has been long believed, he flips it on its head, and he reveals the greater truth. In this case, it's the truth and reality that whenever you and I live out compassionate and sacrificial love towards somebody else, it's just doing it onto Jesus. That when we love our brother and sister in Christ, when we love the stranger, when we love the sick and the hungry and the thirsty, when we love other people, providing for them, we are providing for Jesus. Not to earn our salvation, but because I have it. We already looked at Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, but we can't forget about verse 10. For we, Christians, are his, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Once again, my good works are not mine. Anything good in me is because of what's and who is inside of me that he's already predestined me to do. He's prepared beforehand for those things to be done. As Christians, we have a duty to live out our faith, which is more than fellowship right here on Sunday morning. It's more than prayer and Bible studies and church attendance. These things are essential to the Christian life. These things are necessary to grow in faith. We need this place. But it can't just be this. It has to be the outward expression of our faith. When we meet the physical needs of others. We understand our lives as worship, as Romans 12, 1 and 2 says. When we understand that whatever we find ourselves doing and we do it as unto the Lord, we understand what Colossians 3, 23 is saying. But what about the non-Christian? What about the person who's not living for God but living for themselves? Well, 41 to 43 talks about that. He says, then I will say to those on the left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. 
You know, it's interesting, and maybe you noticed right away, the criteria is the same for the sheep and the goats. Feed, give drink to, welcome me, clothe me, visit me, show compassion. They're all the same benchmarks, and yet what we see is the response is completely different between the sheep and the goats. Jesus finds them failing to do the very thing that he's commanded his followers to do, to love God supremely and to love others. It's a very simple equation, but if we're really honest as Christians, it's a super hard life to live. Right? We can be honest enough to say it's really difficult as a Christian to love God supremely and to love one another and to love the world around us. It's hard. As a pastor, it's hard. But I would say as a non-Christian, it's impossible. You see, without the regeneration of our spirit, our dead souls becoming alive in Christ, we never have the ability to move forward. We never have the chance to love God supremely and to love others as Jesus has instructed. And certainly non-Christians can, can have you know, the, the feeling of love. They can be generous. Non-Christians can you know, do positive things. But I would argue it's because all people are created in the image of God. And we share some attributes of our God who created us. And common grace falls on the righteous and the wicked. And there are good things from God that even non-believers get to enjoy. But what God is calling us to is to overflow the Holy Spirit, God inside of us, presence to the world around us. And you can't do that without the relationship with Jesus. It's not possible. We're not able to live our lives as worship and bring glory and honor to God by loving others. When we find ourselves wrestling with the idea that people are naturally good and they're just, you know, little, you know, you know they try hard and maybe God will be okay with them, we minimize the reality of sin in our lives. Colossians 1.21 says plainly, this includes you, Christians, who were once far away from God. You were his enemies. That's who we were as Christians. Separated from him because God's mean. No by your evil thoughts and your actions. My evil thoughts, my actions separated me from God. However, Romans 5.10 tells us this. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, reconciled, broken relationship becomes mended, restored. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by not my good works, the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life and Jesus is alive. You see, without saving faith in Jesus Christ, through faith, by grace alone, we are enemies of God. Which at the very least is safe to say that we have an attitude and a spiritual posture that's bent away from God and towards rebellion. Our natural state is rebellion. So verses 44 through 46 should not be surprising to us. Our last three verses of the day. Verse 44, then they, the goats, will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? You know, it's funny. 
It's the same criteria, the same benchmarks to both the sheep and the goats. And it's the same response. But the tone is very different. The sheep with the humble response of, Lord, I know I did these things, but when did I do them to you? Where the goats have the animosity, the hostility, the bitterness. When did I ever see you? I wasn't even alive when you were alive. What are you talking about? Notice once again there's confusion. But not confusion about their standing with the Lord, but rather the confusion of the legitimacy of Jesus' accusation against them. Even when Jesus calls them on the carpet, they question his authority. They question his motives. They question his knowledge. There's no repentance, no remorse, no sorrow, or even a half-hearted apology. Instead, there's a glimpse into man's natural state, the response of defense and deflection. Can you hear the tone in their voice? Well, whatever their tone's going to be that day, I can assure you it will be drowned out by Jesus' response to them. Then he, Jesus, will answer them, the goats, saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. You see, Jesus gives the goats the consequences that they have earned. Jesus isn't this big, mean bully who just sends people to hell. These are consequences that are earned by not falling under his lordship, by not coming to him in repentance, not having a relationship with Jesus. Separation from him is earned. Their lives are one of selfish gain, self-focused living, not considering others' others' needs greater than their own. They fell into foolish thinking that if we're not careful, we can fall into. And that somehow my lifestyle, what I do, public and private, online or in person, somehow has a disconnect from my relationship and standing with Jesus. Somehow how I live it might impact my wife's relationship with me, my child's relationship with me, my coworker's relationship with me, but somehow I believe it's not going to affect God's relationship with me. And now the two consequences in verse 46, there's eternal punishment and eternal life. And eternal punishment is really important in the last few minutes we have to talk about this. We believe in a literal and eternal hell which is the eternal punishment that Jesus is speaking of here. It doesn't exist for a short period of time and then God, because he's so good and so merciful, just destroys it all and people cease to exist because God can't handle punishing people. That's called annihilationism. I believe that's heresy. It's really common right now in some belief systems of Christianity. It isn't just some long waiting room where you work off your sin or someone uh, prays and helps you kind of get through this limbo referred to purgatory. That's not biblical. And it's not going to be a place where the demons and Satan himself torment you day and night. Because what does the text today say? That's a place created for Satan and his angels. The weeping and gnashing of teeth, the wailing, the screaming, the loudest ones will be Satan and the demons. That's not to minimize the people who go there. Eternal conscious punishment, lake of fire, weeping and gnashing of teeth, 
Satan's not having fun, he's being tormented. The demons aren't, it's not their playground. The sovereignty, the authority of the living God will be punishing them day and night forever. And all who do not call on the name of Jesus joins them. However, the opposite is true. For the believer, the one who finds eternal security in Christ alone, our consequence is one of life eternal. It's joyously living in the ever-present presence of God in the new heaven, the new earth. It's dwelling where the presence of the triune God dwells forever. It's in a conquering kingdom that can never be defeated. It's spending eternity delighting in God and enjoying him forever alongside of every other believer ever. Will there be an unlimited Mexican food bar? I'm praying about it, but more than that, more than any earthly, amazingly good thing that we expect to be in heaven, we have the perfect presence community with the almighty living God. It's better than a Mexican food bar. It's going to be the most elaborate, amazing display and dwelling that's ever been. No more tears. No more pain. No more death. Eternal life. So what do we take away from a passage like this? I think there's three big ones to end our series well. First off, to acknowledge there's only two groups. There's not more. There's the sheep and the goats. So if you remember, they look a lot alike from afar. And it's easy to be fooled by who is the sheep and who's the goat from afar but the shepherd knows what to look for and the shepherd gets close. With deeper examination, the difference is actually very clear when you know what to look for. So I think you and I have to ask ourselves the question, are we a sheep or are we a goat? Maybe the harder question is am I a goat that's trying to fool others to think I'm a sheep? Do I put on the facade on a Sunday morning around the right people. But my spiritual posture is so bent away from God. Are we wrestling with sinful behavior or are we delighting in our sin? Are we content with secret sin or is this the day that we have to start acknowledging some things? Do we find our faith and our eternal security in Jesus Christ alone? And let me speak to that. Once we're saved and we are in the hands of God, nothing takes us from the hand of God. As Christians, we can struggle with besetting sins. As Christians, we can deal with things. I've been a Christian for 20 years. Some of the 13-year-old Jared is still alive. My wife would tell you that. Not just maturity, but there's, there's sin things there that I wish were dead. They are already, but not yet. We can't fool the shepherd, even though we can fool other sheep. Number two is probably the harder one. Our spiritual posture towards the Lord matters. Neither sheep nor goat were surprised by their standing with the Lord. Their posture never changed. Even when the goats were found out, they railed against him. 
They questioned his authority. They questioned Jesus's decision-making. So we have to ask ourselves, I have to ask myself, what's our spiritual posture towards the Lord right now? Are we bent in asking him to lead us and guide us, to let us hear his voice, to repent of sin, to, to try to live for him? And let's just use the six criteria that are given here. How am I, how are you at feeding the hungry? How are you and I at giving drink to the thirsty? Welcoming the stranger. How are you and I at clothing the naked? Or caring for the sick, ministering to those who are in prison. Let's take it a step further. In the last 18 months, Highland, other churches in Wausau, churches in our nation, the Capital C Church, the sheep of his pasture, we've willingly grown some horns. We've started headbutting each other like rams and biting one another about non gospel issues, opinions, news articles, public issues, both local and statewide, politics. Sometimes we've shared a lot more Facebook messages than we have Bible verses. We feel like the things we're learning about all kinds of things need to be learned by everyone else. And if anyone just understand and think the way I think, then maybe. And what we're doing is as sheep, we're growing horns and we're headbutting one another. And the world is watching. We're biting about non-gospel issues. There's times in my life in the last 20 years as a Christian, if I'm honest, I let some goat-like behavior in my life. Sometimes I, well, a lot of times, I care only about feeding my own family, let alone someone else. I can physically or metaphorically withhold a drink from someone who thinks differently about me or thinks differently than me about COVID or about public policy. I can turn my face from the stranger because let's just be honest, I'm too stressed, I have too much going on, I can't possibly hear someone else's issue, especially someone that I don't know. And sure, those random commercials and ads of people suffering they grip my heartstrings, but I'm conditioned to flip the channel or keep scrolling till I'm laughing at a funny video again. And what a time to care for the sick. You know, before COVID, I was a germaphobe. And it's times when it's hard to be, want to be around people for fear of whatever. And for many people in our church, in the capital C church, it's been a hard year of isolation where maybe some of us have let fear cause isolation to the point of detriment to our own faith and community. We need each other. And as for the person in jail, it's not just about prison ministry. 
This would have been people back then that you hang out with, that your reputation goes out the window if you're seen. That's why Paul's so thankful when people visit him when he's in jail. Because they were losing the reputation. They were losing their standing visiting him. It's far too easy for you and I to have the mindset, well, that's what they get. See, we as sheep can let goat-like behaviors into our lives. I wrote a little note on my desk while studying for this. It's a hard text, you guys. I'll ask you the question I ask myself. Are you soft to the gospel each day in my own life first? Are we coming before the good shepherd as his sheep who knows his voice, trusting him first more than my bank account, my breakfast, the car I drive, my reputation, fill in the blank, trusting him first with each day? Are we repentant? Are we faithful? Are we growing in our sanctification and becoming more like Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit alive inside of us? And last but not least, number three, a simple question. Are we wasting each day we have or taking advantage of the amazing gift that God's given us? Are we looking for ways to physically meet spiritual needs? Are we being a good neighbor that draws our neighbors closer to the Lord by serving them? Am I praying for the guy who lives 50 feet, 100 feet, 200 feet away from me? Or do I just walk to my car and do my thing and get back inside? Are we being the neighbors that just ooze Jesus? What about the stranger, the other, the foreigner, the immigrant? In the middle of planning this and praying about this, writing this, Afghanistan's imploding. And I'm thinking, Lord, what am I going to do? What can I do? I don't quite have that answer yet, but there's a lot of people, no matter how you feel politically about what's happened, there's a humanitarian crisis. Our brothers and sisters died while meeting this past week, a congregation. Things are happening. How are we caring for the other, the, the foreigner, the immigrant? 16 years ago, Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. In four hours, Hurricane Ida will hit New Orleans. There's going to be people who need help. Category four right now. There are people right here in Wausau that need help. We don't do good works to earn salvation. We do these things because God's alive inside of us and he's called us to serve others. And maybe the first thing that I need to do, and perhaps you're right there with me, is shave off the horns. Ask the shepherd to do some clipping and stop headbutting each other. To love one another. We think differently than one another. That's okay. If it's not a gospel issue, charity. Let's pray. God, I have to ask the question of myself, where is the great shepherd leading me? And am I willing to be led? God, I pray that over our congregation, Lord, in your text, your inspired and errant word, you've given hard verses to teach on and preach on. How much harder for those who will stand before you 
and are told to go to the left. Lord, use us to spread your gospel. Use us to meet physical needs and to share the gospel, the greatest need, a spiritual need. Lord, let this start with my own life first. Let Highland and the other Bible teaching churches in this area be known for our love for one another, for the outsider, and most of all for you. You are the good shepherd, and we are the sheep of your pasture. So in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen.